Welcome to the Bridge to God's Word podcast with Carla Unseth, a linguistic consultant for missionaries working in Bible translation. We invite you to visit us at www.bridgetogodsword.org to learn more about Carla's ministry. Now, here's linguistic consultant Carla Unseth. Hi, this is Carla Unseth with Building a Bridge to God's Word. I'd like to start a new series this month focusing on some key biblical terms. There's definitely some terms in the Bible that are hard to understand, and that also causes a challenge for translation, so I thought it might be interesting to look at what some of these terms are and talk about what they mean, and then also talk about some implications for translation. So I'll admit that I started thinking along these lines because I heard someone talk about the meaning of the word glory in the passage 1 Corinthians eleven six, which says, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. So the person that I heard was not actually talking about glory itself, but rather what it means for the woman to be the glory of man. But their interpretation seemed a little bit strange to me, and I won't get into exactly what they said here, but as I thought about how I would interpret it, I felt like the interpretation really hinges on the word glory and our understanding of glory. What does that mean? And it's actually kind of hard to define glory. It's one of those words that we know, it's sort of an intuitive way, but we're not really sure how exactly to explain what it means. And also, it's a word that we really don't use in American culture. It's something that we use most often in a biblical context. So that also kind of makes it hard to understand. And then on top of that, it's usually kind of an abstract word, though it does also have a kind of physical definition because sometimes it refers to a light or a shining or, or brightness that represents God. So how do we get all of these things together to understand what glory means? So I decided I would look at some key terms and I'm going to start this series by discussing the word glory. So we'll look at some of the original Greek and Hebrew words for glory, and then we can talk about what it means in our modern understanding. And I do want to touch on what it means to be someone else's glory, like this passage, 1 Corinthians eleven six. though I'm not going to actually do like a full exegesis of that verse. So let's start by looking at the Hebrew and Greek words for glory. There are a few different words in Hebrew that are translated as glory, and the first and the most often used is the word kavod as a noun or kaved as a verb. And this word literally means weight or to have weight. So let's think for a minute about the connection between weight and glory. And actually, we have a kind of similar connection in English. So when we think of something as weighty or heavy in a metaphorical sense, we're thinking about how significant or important it is. So think about a court case. If there is evidence that's really important, we might call that weighty. It's weighty evidence. It might change the outcome of a trial. Or someone like the president, when he speaks, you know, we stop and we listen and we say that his words are weighty. Oftentimes they indicate the direction of our country, so they're so significant and so important. They have weight. 
We might call a speech or a sermon weighty if it communicates important information about our faith. Actually, as I was looking and studying a bit about this word, I found a commentary on the letters of Paul that was attributed to St. Ambrose, so a saint, and someone else in writing about this commentary said it was brief in words but weighty in matter. So in other words, it was a short commentary, but the contents were very significant to understanding the letters of Paul. So here in English, we also use the word weighty in a way that communicates importance or significance as it does in Hebrew. So when we talk about glory, it has this idea of importance or significance, but it includes more than that as well. In a way, it refers to all the things which make a person significant. Or you could also say make a person worthy of praise. So we read in the Bible about people giving glory to God, and that really means that they're honoring him or praising him because of his greatness, the greatness of who he is, all of his perfect characteristics. So the things that make God glorious are all the things that make God great, all the things that make God majestic or full or splendid. We might say use the word splendor, the things that make God holy or righteous. All of those things are God's glory. So another Hebrew word is the word hadar, which really literally means glory or splendor. So when we think of glory, we don't only think of this significance or, or sort of a metaphorical importance of something, but we also have the feeling that includes some kind of like splendor or majesty or beauty. It's greatness in the realm of beauty or wonder or awe. So this word, hadar, kind of covers that side of glory. It's more like the splendor side. Then, when we look at the New Testament, we have the word doxa, and it kind of rolls some of those ideas together, some of the Old Testament ideas. It has the idea of the abstract greatness and significance, which makes something worthy of praise and honor, and it also has this idea of majesty and splendor, and is actually sometimes used to talk about like the future glory. So, in the end times when we will all be with God and it will be wonderful and glorious and will be in the presence of all of God's greatness. So doxa sometimes refers to that as well. So when we take all of these ideas together, you can see glory is significance, it's greatness, it's what makes someone praiseworthy, and it's also like beauty. So I really like John Piper's definition when he's talking, he's talking specifically about God's glory, but he defines God's glory as the manifest beauty of his holiness or the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifest perfections. So you can see in there that he has the word beauty, he has the word holiness and greatness and the word perfection. So all the things that make God perfect including his beauty and his greatness and his holiness. Now, you'll also notice in these definitions that he uses the word manifest, and that's another aspect of glory. Manifest is something that is made visible or made physical. 
So glory can be something that's physical. Uh, there's a story in the Bible of King Hezekiah. He was a king in the Old Testament, and some envoys came from the kingdom of Babylon, and he showed them all of his treasures. He took them into the treasure room, and he was showing them his glory. His treasures were actually kind of a physical manifestation of his glory. So sometimes glory is abstract, but sometimes it is actually something that is physical. And sometimes in the Bible, God's glory is described as something physical, like a bright or a shining light. When the angels declared at Jesus' birth to the shepherds, it says the glory of the Lord shone around them. So we had sort of a physical manifestation of God's glory that was brightness or a shining light. And at the same time, when we look in the Old Testament at things like the burning bush or the pillar of fire or, or a cloud that came over the tabernacle or led the Israelites in the wilderness, theologians actually believe that this is a manifestation of God's glory, and they call it the Shekinah glory. So here, I'll give you a little bit of information about translation and translating the word glory. So the fact that glory is both this abstract concept of someone's sort of metaphorical greatness, but also can be this concrete manifestation that comes in something like light or brightness, actually makes it pretty hard to translate. So in a lot of languages, there isn't one word that covers both the abstract and the physical meanings. But in the Greek and Hebrew words, these meanings aren't necessarily separate from each other. Okay, even though the word kavod, we didn't talk about it having that meaning of, of like a physical brightness, it was still included in that meaning. And it's definitely also included in doxa, both the abstract and the physical. So what do you do when you have a language that doesn't have one word that includes both of these together? And often what you have to do is to use two different words. And when it comes to a physical manifestation of God's glory, you use a word that actually means like brightness or shining. Or when you're, it's a word that's talking about the more the greatness or praiseworthiness of God, you have to use a different word. The problem is that it's hard to tell, right? Because these two meanings are mixed together. So there's times when it's like, ah, oh, it's both of them. So what exactly do we do here? And actually in the language that I work with the most often, we, we've had this problem with the word glory. And interestingly, you know, this project has been going on for over 20 years. We've had a lot of time to think about these words and choose what words to use, but we really still agonize over the word glory. Every time it appears, you know, which one is it? Is it this physical brightness or is it talking about more of like the greatness or praiseworthiness of God? And um, our translators tend to translate as the physical brightness. And I think that's because it's concrete. So it's a little bit easier to say, oh, glory. All right, that's brightness or shining. Use something concrete. So we have to do a lot of revision when it comes to the word glory. A lot of thinking, like what exactly does this mean and how do we best communicate it? So that's just a little look at translation and how we translate the word glory. And so, so far we have said that glory is the representation of God's beauty, his holiness, his greatness. It is abstract and it's also physical. 
The physical aspect is often called the Shekinah glory. And I wanted to tell you one more thing about the Shekinah glory. And that is that after the birth of Jesus, we actually don't really see this phenomenon anymore. And theologians believe that this is because Jesus, at that point, actually is the manifestation of God's glory. So in other words, he becomes the physical representation of all the things that are great and majestic about God. So Hebrews 1.3 says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So that is showing he's both the physical and this abstract representation of God's glory. So now that all leads us into the question of how somebody can be the glory of somebody else. And it does seem like this verse in Hebrews helps us to answer that question. So what it means for Jesus to be the glory of God was that he was actually a physical manifestation of God and he revealed all of his perfect qualities. So as John Piper put it, Jesus is the beauty of the manifest perfections of God. So the result is that people look at Jesus and they see all the good and praiseworthy perfections of God and they praise God. And not only do the actions and the character of Jesus reveal God, but his words also. He was constantly leading people into praise of God. And actually, I tried to find a verse where Jesus says, like, I glorify God. And there really wasn't one that said that specifically, but it's, you just see it everywhere. You see in everything that Jesus did that he was leading people into praise of God. And at the same time, I think that part of Jesus being the glory of God is that God also delights in Jesus. So, for example, when Jesus was baptized, God said, This is my son with whom I am well pleased. So Jesus physically reflects God. He verbally gives praise to God, and then God also takes delight in Jesus. So based on that, let's look at 1 Corinthians eleven seven, which says, A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Okay, so first we should say that this verse isn't really trying to explain how men and women relate to each other. It's really talking about head coverings. And honestly, the whole passage is one of the more difficult passages to understand. So that said, we need to understand that this isn't easy all around. But let's look a little bit about what it means for men to be the glory of God. And I think there are similarities with Jesus being the glory of God. And of course, men and humans in general can't be the glory of God in exactly the same way that Jesus is because humans are flawed and sinful. So we can't be the manifest perfections of God. We sin. We aren't perfect. But humans are made in the image of God. And it says that in that verse, that man is the image and glory of God. And so in that way, we reflect God's attributes. So for example, God is the creator and we are creative. God is compassionate. And when we have compassion on people, we reflect that. Conversely, God is also just, and so our justice also reflects him. So humans are the glory of God because we reflect him, and humans, of course, also verbally praise God. And, you know, when somebody sees something good in you, especially as Christians, 
we want to turn that back to praise and say, everything that's good in me is because of God. So we are the glory of God because we verbally praise God as well. Gordon Fee is a man who wrote a commentary on 1 Corinthians, and he said, Paul probably means, he's talking about this passage, Paul probably means that the existence of the one brings honor and praise to the other. So, in other words, the existence of man, of humans, brings honor and praise to God. And beyond that, I also think that God does take delight in his creation, and that's another way that creation is his glory, that humans are his glory. Um, for example, Psalms 8, 5 through 6 says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So clearly, here, this verse is saying that humans are the glory of God because God takes delight in them. So you can hear that I'm using the word humans rather than the word man, because to some extent, all humans are the glory of God. And I don't think that this passage is making a distinction by saying men specifically are the image and glory of God and women aren't. <laughs> Instead, this passage is saying sort of beyond that, this word but is not like a complete adversative in Greek. So rather it's saying beyond that, women are the glory of man. So the point is not that women are not the glory of God, but rather that women have a specific relationship to men as their glory. So we talked about, we've talked so far about being someone else's glory as being a physical manifestation or representation of them. That being someone's glory means giving them praise through your existence, through your words, and in being their delight, the delight of that other person. So I'm going to actually give you a quote by Gordon Fee again, and I think he explains this really well, what this relationship between men and women is, and especially in light of creation. So you continue on in verses 8 and 9, and Paul gives his reasoning kind of based in creation in the way that men and women were created. So what Gordon Fee says is, Man by himself is not complete. He's alone, without a companion or helper suitable to him. The animals will not do. He needs one who is bone of his bone, one who is like him but different from him, one who is uniquely his own glory. In fact, when the man in the Old Testament narrative sees the woman, he glories in her by bursting out into song. She is thus man's glory because she came from man and was created for him. She's not thereby subordinate to him, but necessary for him. She exists to his honor as the one who, having come from man, is the one companion suitable to him, so that he might be complete and that they together might form humanity. So you can see through what he's saying that the woman is man's glory because her existence brings praise to the man, but also that man takes delight in women. I don't know that we need to stretch it to say that she's a physical representation of man, and the verse actually avoids saying that woman is the image of man. Instead, it says woman is the glory of man, and, and what Gordon Fee is saying is that's because her existence is necessary for his. So the very existence of women brings honor to man, and at the same time, man takes delight in woman. He talks about singing that a song of glory when the woman was created. So 
I know that that's just scratching the very surface of the verse, but I hope that helps us to start to think about what it means for woman to be the glory of man, and that this is based in creation. It is because her very existence makes it possible for him to exist. Her existence brings him honor, and then also he turns that back and honors her as well. So that is a look at the word glory. Uh, glory is a description of the significance, the holiness, the beauty, the perfection of a person, especially God. It can be abstract character qualities, or it can be this physical manifestation of, of these good things about a person. And a person who is the glory of someone else represents those qualities through their actions, through their words, through praise of that person. So I hope this helps you understand the word glory a little better. And I hope you'll join us again next time to hear about another biblical key word. So thanks for joining us and see you again next time on Building a Bridge to God's Word.